If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, would you open to the Old Testament book of Exodus? Exodus chapter 13. And I'm going to ask you to keep a finger there, or if you have markers in your Bible, mark Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Kind of set up housekeeping in that passage, if you will, because we're going to bounce in and out of it. And there are some wonderful, wonderful gold nuggets that I want to turn over for you. But before we get to that, we've got to make a stop in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. So once you have Exodus chapter 13 found, turn with me to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 14. As I was putting this message together this past week and realized I was going to use this passage, this story out of the Bible, I was having flashbacks. I really was to Betsy Billings at Westlink Christian Church when I was in fourth grade Sunday school teaching us this story on flannel graphs. Anybody remember flannel graphs? Those were a great thing. I'm just sad that they're gone. You had this, this board covered in flannel, and the teacher would take these little characters that she'd cut out of her Sunday school book that had flannel or Velcro or something on the back of it. She'd stick those on the flannel graph, and they didn't stay very well, so they would flop over. And, and then for those of us that were ADD, this was a great blessing. They'd just start falling off. So you'd get to watch as she's going, towards, or going through the story, and different characters are hitting the ground. They were great. I miss flannel graphs. I really do. Here's a little commercial for you. I won't talk about this very long, but parents, if you have children living in your home, grandparents, if you have influence on your grandchildren, get them in Sunday school. It matters. That's a place where a foundation for a lifetime of faith is built. I can tell you in all honesty that I have no regrets about growing up in Sunday school. I have no regrets that our children are growing up in Sunday school. Get your kids in Sunday school. Think about all of the different ways that we educate our children. We get them into preschool as soon as we can because we don't want them to be behind academically. So we make that investment in their lives. If we want them to be involved in sports, we send them to sports camps so that they learn the fundamentals as quickly as they can. We want them to be ahead of the game. We send them to music camps for the same reason, drama camps, on and on and on. All these different ways that we invest in educating our children. But then when it comes to Sunday school in the modern world, a lot of parents aren't making that investment. And listen to me, my friends, you are robbing your children of the foundation that they need. You get them in Sunday school. And even when the time comes that they say, I don't want to go anymore, and you're thinking they're old enough to make their own decision, well, they're still under your roof. You make that decision for them, and you keep them in Sunday school. You keep them in the Word of God so that they are growing up with the the pillars of their faith being developed and built. It matters. It just matters. And there are passages of Scripture like this in the book of Proverbs. You don't have to turn with me. Just listen to this. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. There's one translation of the Bible that says, start children out on the path that they should go, and when they're old, they will not turn from it. If you want to experience that, get your kids in educational experiences in the Word of God and help them grow up in it. It matters. It just matters. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, no, it isn't. We have some great teachers. We really do. We have men and women both that are invested in teaching the kids of this church. A lot of times people think that it's just ladies that teach Sunday school. We are blessed as a congregation to have some strong men that are teaching in children's Sunday school and pouring themselves into it. They're exceptional teachers. Get your kids in there so that they're influenced by it. Now, my commercial's done. We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 14. 
And I hope you have your Bibles open there. This passage that we're about to read is, well, it's like a big plate of chicken fried steak with mashed potatoes sitting next to it and gravy over the top of it and then a little platter of apple pie with some ice cream on the top melting down. I'm getting hungry. Melting down off the sides. It's, this is comfort food in Scripture. It really is. Makes you feel good. Listen to these words. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that passage of Scripture is like a plate of comfort food to us. One of those reasons is because we we read those words and we think to ourselves, when I need God the most, He will be there. When things are getting really rough in my life, I can trust that Jesus will always respond to my needs. There's a lot of comfort in that. It makes us feel good when we know it. It makes us feel good knowing that God is always paying attention to us and He's always going to show up when we need Him the most. That's part of the comfort of that passage. But if you're really reading it critically, you can see that there are some other things that provide comfort to us as we go through it, particularly in the world that we live in today. Now, in order to explain this, you need to see it. So we're going to project it. Here it is. Three times the same word shows up in this passage. That word is immediately. We live in an immediate-minded society, meaning we want everything right now. In the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger, I want everything right now. Instant gratification is a big part of the world that we live in. So we see this word show up three times in this passage, and we begin to have a little bit of gravy running through our veins. It's comfortable. Wow. God's going to operate in the immediate. But I want you to pay attention to these. Let's look at the first one. Immediately, verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The crowd was 5,000 men plus women and children. They'd all just had fish sandwiches at the feet of Jesus. He had just fed all of them, and now he's sending the crowd on their way. And immediately, immediately before everybody's gone, he says to the disciples, you get in the boat and you leave. Verse 27, we find the next immediately. But Jesus said immediate, or Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now the wind was blowing and the waves were getting pretty rough. The disciples were out in this boat that Jesus had put them in. He told them to get in the boat and head to the other side. And now here he comes in the middle of the storm and they see him. They see him. The Bible says, immediately he responded, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. They were terrified. They were already terrified of the storm. They were terrified when they saw him. They thought he was a ghost. Third, immediately, verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Peter got out of the boat. You know the story. 
Peter got out of the boat. He's walking to Jesus. His eyes are fixed on him. And then he decides to do things his own way. Takes his eyes off. Jesus begins to sink. And the Bible says immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed him and pulled him back to the surface. Immediately. Three times the word immediately shows up. That's comfortable. Immediately. Blink of an eye. Snap of a finger. Jesus is going to do for us what we need him to do. He's always going to be there. Johnny on the spot. Ready to do whatever we need. But here's what you have to know. There was a huge span of time between the first immediately and the second immediately. We would learn as we study the Bible that the apostles, the disciples, got into that boat mid to late afternoon. It was not until after three o'clock in the morning that Jesus showed up. You see, the Romans broke the night watch into four different watches. Six o'clock in the evening to nine o'clock, nine o'clock to midnight, midnight to three, three to six. The Bible says that it was not until the fourth watch had begun that Jesus came. We know from verse 21 as we read it that when evening came, the disciples were already gone. Jesus was dismissing the crowd. He was there alone as the sun was going down. As evening began to settle on them, he was alone. So they'd gotten into that boat mid to late afternoon. And after sometime after three o'clock in the morning, Jesus showed up. That's a long span of time. When the wind is blowing, when the storm is raging all around you, that's a long span of time. It wasn't as immediate as we might believe it was. It took a long time for Jesus to get there, particularly if you were in a boat being tossed back and forth by the wind and the waves, and then Jesus shows up. It is oftentimes that way. As much as we want to believe that Jesus always operates in the immediate, more often than not, he doesn't. More often than not, he takes his time, and there's a reason for it. I want to show you that reason this morning. We find it in Exodus chapter 13. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you and open to that passage. Remember, we're going to bounce in and out of this scripture, so you're going to need to stay there. Exodus 13, beginning with verse 17. I'm going to ask Tina to come and read it for us. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have left 
let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, had been in captivity for centuries in Egypt. The end of the book of Genesis shows you how that happened. By the time we get to the beginning of the book of Exodus... God is ready to deliver his people out of that captivity. They have grown from 12 families to millions of people. 
Moses is going to lead them out of there under God's direction. He's had to do battle with Pharaoh in order to bring that about. The first few chapters of the book of Exodus detail that battle, both the verbal battle, the physical battle, and the spiritual battle that was contained within all of that. And now by the time we get to chapter 13, it's time for them to leave. Listen again to verse 17 and 18 and how that happens. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Doctors, many doctors, tend to be in agreement that babies begin learning long before they are ever born. They begin learning literally in the womb. The reason they believe that is they've detailed the growth of nerve cells in the brains of babies. By the end of the the pregnancy, those cells are maturing, growing, and being created at the rate of 250,000 per minute as they are headed towards 100 billion nerve cells and connectors in a mature brain. 250,000 a minute are being created within them. And towards the end of pregnancy, these doctors, these experts would tell you that one of the things that's happening within the brains of babies is the creation of the risk versus reward loop that they're going to need to make it through life. Now, the risk versus reward loop looks at every situation that we're ever faced with, starting in the womb and then continuing on for years and years and years, from a, a risk standpoint, how much am I going to have to risk versus the reward? What am I going to get if I risk that? For a baby, that begins with leaving the womb. That's part of the birth process, as mentally they have to prepare themselves to come out of the womb. Now, how these experts come up with this, I don't know. But there's a certain risk-reward loop that runs through their mind as they think about leaving the comfort of their mother's womb and coming into the world. They're about to risk a lot. Now, they're about to reap a lot of rewards. But that's how it has to be processed. For decades after a baby is born, it's the risk versus reward loop that is responsible for the bulk of their teaching. That's the way the majority of babies learn everything and toddlers learn everything and small children learn most of what they learn. It comes through risk versus reward. How much am I willing to risk and what am I going to get if I risk that? Now let me illustrate that for you. When a baby is first born, they're carried around in the arms of their mother. Mom takes them everywhere that they want to go, every place that they have to go, always held safe in the arms of mom. Then comes that moment when that baby realizes that I could have a little more independence if I could move myself around, if I didn't have to rely on mom all the time. So they think to themselves, if I start crawling, I'm going to have more independence. But crawling brings with it its own risks. I'm going to get further away from mom. But the reward is independence, the ability to do things on my own. When they master crawling, the next step is to think, if I could just walk, this whole house would be mine. I can go everywhere. So they process it in their minds. All I have to do is risk falling in order to have that type of independence. And in the process that they go through, that these babies go through, they look at the reward and they recognize that it's worth the risk. Yep, I might fall, but that's okay. Look at what I'm going to get as a result of it. So they crawl over to some stationary object, pull themselves up on these teetering little legs. They balance themselves there, and then eventually they let go, take one step, and bam, they hit the ground. 
they cry and mom comforts them and dad takes pictures and it's a wonderful celebration. And then they do it again. They pull themselves over to that stationary object, pull themselves up on these weak little legs. They get themselves all balanced and they let go and they take two steps and they fall. And then they do it again and it's three steps and four steps and five steps. Always going through the risk versus reward loop in their minds. If I risk it, I may fall. But if I don't fall, look at what I have. This whole house is mine. Parents long for that moment. They live for that moment. And then they pray that that moment will go away because they spend all their time chasing their children. That's the way it works. Moms and dads in here know exactly what I'm talking about. Risk versus reward, that loop continues determining a whole lot of what a baby goes through. Now, the interesting thing is, the risk versus reward loop has absolutely zero reasoning in it. It is all experiential, and it is all emotional. I want this, therefore I will risk that. I want to get there, so I'll do whatever it takes to get there. I will do whatever it takes to gain access to the things that I want to have access to. Risk versus reward. There is no reasoning. Reasoning comes with experience. Reasoning comes as this neural map gets built in their mind. And the neural map is built out of experiences. I've experienced this, therefore I know what the outcome will be. It's based solely on the things that we have been through. Over the course of a number of years, we all develop a neural map. For some of us, the risks are greater than others in certain experiences because our neural map says, I'm not going to do that because of what happened to me the last time. I'm not going to do that because of what I've heard from other people. My neural map stops me or my neural map encourages me. And it's very, very personal. As that reasoning begins to take hold, we begin to see all kinds of different things happen. The interesting thing is this. You cannot rush the development of a neural map. It comes through experience. A lot of people would like to believe that it comes through education, and once you have a certain education, you're ready to go out and do whatever. My son and I were watching a TV show the other night. It was an army show, and we we really like those. So we're watching this army show, and there's this 21, 22-year-old second lieutenant that is trying to tell a 40-plus-year-old master sergeant the way things are supposed to happen. Now, you can imagine that sergeant looking at the lieutenant thinking, "Uh uh-huh, now I'm going to do it the right way. And that's exactly the way it played out. Maybe you have a 20, 21-year-old young person that lives in your house and they believe they know everything and they are willing to share with you the answers to all of life's problems. Well, the question has to be, where, where are you getting those answers? Because it's not coming out of your neural map. It's not coming out of your vast number of experiences. So it's coming from somewhere else. And folks, education does not trump experience. Opinion does not trump experience. In the realm of our neural maps, we have to have those. And they are built through risk versus reward. But Once that map is in place, amazing things can happen. Spiritually, the same thing takes place. When we come to Christ, there's this unique terminology that Jesus himself would use for that experience. It's called being born again. When you come to Christ, you're born again as if you are an infant. You're born into the infancy of Christianity, and you have to grow up. You have to develop a neural map in Christ. 
If you're a new Christian, a baby Christian, good for you. You're a baby Christian. That's exactly who you should be. And you should be growing up in your faith. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul would say, When I was a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now you can apply that spiritually. When I was a baby in Christ, I thought like a baby in Christ. I talked like a baby in Christ. I reasoned like a baby in Christ. But as I've grown up, I've put some of that behind me, and I'm living now a mature way. I'm living in righteousness the way God wanted me to. And that process is never wrong. It is never wrong. Sitting in this room right now, we have infants in Jesus. Sitting in this room right now, we have the elderly in Christ. It's okay. And we have everything in between. And by the way, you don't have to be old to be the elderly in Christ. Look at Deanie. He's, well... He's getting older. But he's got this long history of experiences, the development of a neural map with Christ that come from years of being with him. We've got everything from infants to the elderly. And that's the way it's supposed to be. We develop all of these different experiences that God might get us where he wants us to be. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 13. And I'll show you one of the ways that God helps us develop that neural map, spiritual neural map. Verse 17 again. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. God led them. They were babies. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, they had very little experience, first-hand experience with God. They knew what it meant to live in Egypt. They knew how to live in slavery, but they were about to be delivered from that slavery, and they had no idea how to live that way. No idea whatsoever. There was nothing within their history of experiences that could teach them how to live as anything but a slave. So God led them. God led them. Like a parent leads their child, God led them. And did you see where he led them? He took them on the long road. He took them on the long road. They didn't go the short way through Philistine territory. He led them on the long road. You ever been on the long road with God? Or maybe you've been praying about something, for years and years and years, and it seems like God just isn't listening, might be that you're on the long road. Have you ever found yourself thinking, I know what God wants for me, I'm absolutely positive that it's His will, but I don't seem to be able to bring it about. How come I can't get there? Maybe you're on the long road. Does it seem to you at times that you are facing some struggles in your life that you wish you weren't facing, and, and you don't know why it is that you're facing them? Maybe it's because you're on the long road and those are battles that have to be dealt with and maybe, just maybe, it's because you got off of God's road and you chose your own path and you headed through enemy territory where the battles are too much for you. God didn't lead you there. God keeps you on the long path. God will take us out there so that we get to where we need to be. God, more often than not, takes us on that path, the long road road. And it's okay. 
Because as far as I can tell in the Bible, God's not interested in shortcuts at all. I did an interesting little study with a concordance this past week. I just opened up my concordance and I started looking for the term shortcut. I didn't find it in my concordance, so I went to BibleGateway.com, typed in shortcut. I wanted to see how many times that term shows up in the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess? Zero. Zero. Not one time does the term shortcut show up in God's Word. So I started playing around with it a little bit. And here's what I found out. Seven times the term cut short shows up. Not one time does shortcut show up, but seven times cut short shows up. There's only two times that it shows up in a positive manner. Both of those are in the gospel, speaking about the end times, the judgment of God that is still to come. And God says that we wouldn't be able to handle it. People wouldn't be able to handle those days if his full wrath was poured out. So he cuts short those days. That's the only time that the term is ever used in a positive light. Every other time, the five other times that the term cut short is used deals with people that made a decision to get off of God's path, do things their own way, and God cut short. In some situations, it says God even cut short their days on the earth because of what they had done. You see, there is no place in the Bible where we can find that God is friendly to the idea of shortcuts. Nowhere. It's exactly the opposite. On the long road, God shows us all kinds of different things. He shows us things about ourselves, and he shows us things about himself. Sitting in my computer, I just did a little writing this past week about what we discover on the long road. Here's what I came up with. It's there that we learn about our needs, our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins, our transformation, our faith, our knowledge, And it's there that we learn about His providence, His sovereignty, His protection, His power, His wisdom, His patience, His plan, and His salvation. Now let's just look at the first half of that list, the things that we learn on that road about ourselves. It allows us to see our strengths and it allows us to see our weaknesses. And when we discover those things, we understand what we're capable of. Once we understand that, it begins to bring into light some understanding about passages that may seem totally elusive to us otherwise, like this one. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That passage of Scripture has been used over and over and over again, and people have been confused about what it really means. Sometimes this is the depth of the meaning of it. Sometimes you're on the long road. That's God's way out. He's going to take you around the enemy territory. It may take you longer to get to where you need to be, but He's going to help you avoid some of those traps that sit in front of you. God will take you on the long path so that you don't have to face the Philistines. God provides a way out, and sometimes that way out is the long road. You just have to learn to be patient. Because in being patient, you are confronted with the bottom half of that list. All the things that we know about God that are always better, the things that we know about God are always better than what we know about ourselves. And once those begin to take hold in our life, something pretty amazing happens. Let me show it to you. Old Testament again, book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Listen to what Solomon writes. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Now, all of that happens. All of that happens on the long path. The long road is a place of surrender. So we can learn to trust and to lean and to acknowledge all the things of God. And then listen to what Solomon says happens. And He will make your paths straight. You may be on this long, winding road until you get to a point of surrender. And when you get to the point of surrender where you're able to say, Okay, God, you've got it figured out better than I do. I surrender. Then the Bible would teach that God makes your path straight at that point. Sometimes you've got to stay on the long path before that happens. Once you do, you get into the sweet spot of where God wants you to be. Let me show you what that looks like. You don't have to turn with me. Just listen to this. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They're on the long road. They'd been kept. God himself, the Holy Spirit, had kept them from being able to preach to these people. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Long road. They said, we want to go into Bithynia. We want to preach there. We want to do this. We want to do that. And God said, no. He kept them on the long road. So they passed to Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's what the long road does for us. It gets us to where God wants us to be. And it keeps us from taking all these little sidetracks because I trust that I am following God. I trust that God is leading, and it may take a, t- a while. It may take a long time. It may not be in our timing at all, but God's timing is better than ours. So on the long path, we learn patience. On the long path, we learn to struggle. On the long path, we learn to surrender. I have an interesting little practice, and it's interesting to me anyway, in the counseling office. I use it a lot. Somebody comes in, they're sharing with me the things that are happening in their life, and I don't know them very well. I ask them to chart out their life for me. The highs and the lows as we look for baseline type activity in their life, and we try to determine happiness versus sadness. We try to determine all kinds of different things. And most people, when they start charting out their life, will have huge peaks, and then they have deep valleys. And one of the things that we always try to identify is what brought about the valleys. What took them from the peak to the valley? What got them off of the main path through their life where they get to experience the highs and the lows that are just a normal part of life, but instead put them into these peaks and these valleys? All too often what we discover is that those valleys are the direct result of their own choices, their own paths as they get off the long road that God had them on. Marriages, I do the same thing with. As married couples will tell me about their life and some of the struggles that they have, I ask them to chart their marriage from the time of dating until the present time, and we see the same thing. There are some huge peaks and some deep valleys, and a lot of times those valleys are a direct result of getting off of God's path. Those deep valleys are when they choose to do things their own way, and they take shortcuts trying to get to certain places. And remember, God's not particularly interested in shortcuts. He'll take you on the long road to get you to where he wants you to be. Even in individual lives, as people struggle with God and they try to figure out why is God doing these things or why isn't God doing such things? Why is God leaving me out here on my own? The same thing works. You chart it out. You put your life down in print on paper so that you can look at it and you can find your own shortcuts. I left the path 
that God had for me. I tried to straighten it on my own rather than learning how to lean and acknowledge and trust that God might straighten the path. I tried to do it myself. And when I try to do it myself, it ends in disaster every time. Shortcuts for Christians end in disaster every time. So you get out there on the long road and you wait to see where God's going to take you. It's always good. It's always good. And you can trust it. Because interesting things happen on the long road. Are you still in the book of Exodus? If not, turn back there. Chapter 14. These people that are developing their own neural map on this long road. These people that are having to get all of these experiences very quickly are now looking behind them as the Egyptian army is closing in on them. Even after Pharaoh said, go ahead to Moses, go ahead and take your people out of here, he had second thoughts. He wished he hadn't done it. So he sent his army after them, going to chase them down. The Hebrew people, even though they were armed for battle, they were not as well healed as the Egyptians were. They got scared. Verse 13, they were crying out to Moses. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Listen to this, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Listen to this again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That is an incredible spiritual warfare passage. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, isn't that great teaching? It really is. That teaching helps us develop a spiritual discipline that's elusive to a lot of people. The discipline is called stillness. Now, we understand things about reading the Bible. We understand things about attending church and going to Sunday school and praying. Spiritual disciplines. We understand things about obedience. Well, here's a spiritual discipline that most people overlook, and they shouldn't. It's the discipline of stillness, because that's where we trust, and we lean, and we acknowledge. The psalmist would say that we are to be still and know that He is God. Isaiah would write that those who wait on the Lord, other translations say those who hope on the Lord, will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you want to renew your strength, you learn stillness. If you're spiritually exhausted, if you're worn out and you've been on this long road for a long time, but you keep trying to take these other shortcuts that end in dead ends every time, then be still. Learn this whole idea of trusting and leaning and acknowledging that God might make the path straight. And you do that through understanding, learning, and applying stillness in your life. Lord, I will do nothing. I will do nothing. I want you to look at what Moses said to them. This is, this is just great teaching. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. You've been in a long battle with certain sins. You've tried to get past them and you just haven't been able to. Let me offer to you that the best defense that you might have is stillness. You just surrender. You surrender. And that sin that you see behind you right now, you will never see again. The struggle that you are facing right now, you will never struggle against again. 
and stillness because that's where you find the victory of the Lord. Those Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And the same thing can be true for Christians. And stillness allows us to see it. The long road allows us to see it. Stillness says, God, I surrender to you. I'm no longer going to try to do it on my own, and I will stay out of these shortcuts. I will avoid them at every turn. And if that means that I've got to take the long way around, I'll take the long way around. Lord, you lead, and I will follow. Stillness teaches us to follow Stillness teaches us to trust that we might experience victory in our lives. Listen to this again. This is so pointed. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. But listen to what Moses says. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You let God do it. You let God take care of it. Because whether you know this or not, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's bigger than you. So you let God take care of it. And stillness, the discipline of it, works. And you might say, preacher, that sounds really good. Because I've dealt with some Egyptians for a long time. They have been chasing me for a long time. I'm tired of Egyptian food. I am tired of the smell of Egyptians. I am tired of the sound of Egyptians. I am tired of the Egyptians. And I want to be out of them. How in the world do I do this? I am so glad you asked that question. Five things. First one is this. Understand that sometimes the battle is not yours. Sometimes it's God's. And you need only be still. And if you can understand that sometimes the battle is God's, you've got it. Now I'll illustrate that for you this way. I want you to imagine that going to work for you is not a pleasant experience. You don't enjoy it at all. The person that you work for is just an ogre. They're a a horrible individual, and you hate the idea of getting out of bed in the morning and going to work. John Basham knows what I'm talking about. John works for David Boulware. I wasn't going to put any names to this, but I just thought that will illustrate it better. So John thinks, I just don't want to go to work. I don't want to get out of here because David just will not do the things that he needs to do. So John spends year after year after year trying to change David trying to get him to become a better boss, trying to get him to treat them better, trying to get him to react better, trying to get David to let him have more time off. All kinds of different things come into play there. And it never seems to work. Nothing ever seems to change. And John is just frustrated. Time and time again, he's frustrated because he's thrown all this effort at trying to change his work environment. And so finally he says, Lord, I surrender. I just, I surrender." I got nothing left. You lead, I'll follow. God puts him on the long road where he learns how to surrender. And in that moment, John realizes that the changing of David is not his responsibility, it's God's. God is interested in changing John. So John opens up the Bible and he begins to read, just looking for what he's supposed to do. And he goes to places like this in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. By the way, when you come across that idea of slavery in the New Testament, we tend to dismiss it. You can put that in as employees. Employees, obey your earthly bosses in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. You see, John realizes on the long road that his responsibility is to become the employee that God wants him to be. It is his responsibility to be transformed into the man that God wants to transform him into. Anything that happens in David's life is God's job. And sometimes the battle is not yours. It's God's. So you surrender it. You just stop. The long road helps you do that. The victory is already there. You need only be still and you focus on you. Then in the process of that, you're able to understand that sometimes the odds are against you, but they are never against God. Sometimes the odds are against you, but they are never against God. Somebody say amen. Amen. It may look really overwhelming to you as you're on the long road and you're trying to get to where God wants you to be. The odds may say that there's no way you can pull it off. You may even find people in this world that tell you there's no way you can pull this off. The odds are against you, but they are never, they are never, they are never against God and they are never bigger than Him. Listen to this from the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The odds are always in God's favor. Always in God's favor. And sometimes, on the long road, we realize that it is more about how we live than it is about the outcome. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Sometimes it's about the journey more than it's about the outcome. Sometimes it's about how you live, not whether you win or lose. It's about how you handle it. You learn that on the long road. You learn that type of patience. You learn that type of surrender. Lord, it's more about you than it is about me. And I want people to see you when they see me. We also learn while we're out there that oftentimes the rewards are in heaven, not here. This is also Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Long Road teaches you that you're living for eternity. The Long Road teaches you that it isn't just about life here. Sometimes the Long Road teaches you that we're living heavenward. And that's where the rewards are going to come that really matter. What happens here, that doesn't really matter. What happens there, what happens in the presence of God, that's what it's all about. Sometimes the Long Road teaches us eternal vision. Sometimes the long road teaches us that it's all about God and not about us. And so God takes us there. Because anything else would put us into the enemy's territory where we would be convinced that it's all about us and it's all about here. Those are some of the best teachings of the enemy. So God steers you around them. It may take a long time to get you there. But God takes you there for a reason. That your faith might be built. Number five, if you're taking notes. Number five, the long road. Long road. It's a place where faith is built. So you trust that that's what's happening. You are gaining spiritual neural maps while you are walking that road with God. 
And over and over and over again, you're able to see what He can do. Over and over and over again on the long path, you're able to see what God is capable of. Over and over and over again on the long path, you get to surrender and say, Lord, I am trusting, I am leaning, I am acknowledging you. And God just continues to take the curves out of the road. And he straightens the path to get you where he wants you to be. Go back with me to the book of Exodus again. Exodus chapter 14. Once you get there, I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the last passage of Scripture we'll go to. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now hopefully you've got a finger in Exodus chapter 14, and now you've got one in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you do, I want you to hold your Bibles up just like this. Just like this. Exodus 13, Deuteronomy chapter 4. You've got them pinched between two fingers. That's 40 years. That's 40 years. As the Bible tells time, that's 40 years. They were on the long road for 40 years. But listen from Deuteronomy chapter 4 to what happens. Verse 37. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. The end of the long road are God's promises. The end of the long road is God's presence. The end of the long road is the ability to rest in the things of God. It may take a while, though. It's been well said that Israel got out of Egypt in one night, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Good way of looking at it. Same thing is true with us. We get out of bondage and slavery instantly when we come to Christ. It may take a long time to get some of that out of us. We struggle against it. We battle against it with God on our side. And more often than not, what is called for on your behalf is stillness. It's a spiritual discipline. It takes a lot of work. Try it and see what happens. The long road is God's road, and it's a good one. So if you're discouraged, if you're beat down from being on it too long, if you have questions that are just overwhelming you, you trust that you're following the Lord. And if you're not, if you've taken your own shortcuts, it is not too late for you to turn around and get back on God's path. That's the whole idea of repentance. Turn around, get back on God's path, and let Him lead you into righteousness. It's a good place to be. It really is. It's a great place to be because that's where God's at. And He is greater than anything the world has to offer And for any Christian that has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, they know this to be true. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. Stand and pray with me. Father, we will not lie to you or ourselves and try to say that the long road is what we would always choose. It's not. I know that it's not always what you choose. Sometimes there are direct, straight paths. Thank you for that. But Lord, teach us how to live otherwise. Teach us how to thrive otherwise. Teach us how to trust and lean and acknowledge. Lord, let us follow you. 
pray that that'll be true for everyone in this room today. I pray especially for those that need to start that journey. Would you let that happen today? Father, make them bold enough to take the, the first step. You've got all the others covered, Lord. Just take a step into you. Let them know what waits for them. And then, Father, lead them for the rest of their lives. And Father, we all make ourselves available to you for that very thing. Lead us for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.